This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Outsiders, often our respective jobs seem unique, fun, and enviable. Little do your friends know that you work while everyone else plays. You juggle travel schedules, demanding colleagues, and budgets that often require miracles. You have days in which you feel stretched so thin you're transparent. Your family recognizes you from the picture posted in the den or else your kids won't talk to you because they've been warned to stay away from strangers. We know that beneath this humor is the pain of reality. Research testifies that Americans across all economic spectrums are working more hours than ever before. Technology, which was to have made our lives simpler in many ways, has added to the speed and overload we all feel. Eileen McDar has been tracking work-life balance issues for over 20 years, and without a doubt, from Australia to India to the British Isles, we are all now united in an epidemic that has no overnight cure and costs businesses millions of dollars in health costs and reduced productivity. What can you do about it? In this episode, Valeria Tellis interviews Eileen McDar about balancing an unequal life, connecting consciously, living holistically, and more. Since 1980, Eileen McDar has helped organizations and individuals transform the life of their business and the business of their life through conversations that matter and connections that count. She has become known as a master facilitator, an award-winning author, and an internationally recognized keynoter and executive coach. She draws upon practical business know-how, life's experiences, and years of consulting to major national and international organizations that have ranged from global pharmaceuticals to the U.S. Armed Forces, from healthcare associations to religious institutions. Her programs are content-rich, interactive, provocative, and playful, even downright hilarious. In 2019, Global Gurus International, a British-based provider of resources for leadership, communication, and sales training, also ranked her first as one of the world's top 30 communication professionals following a global survey of 22,000 business professionals. Eileen has written six books, and her seventh book, Burnout to Breakthrough, Building Resilience to Refuel, Recharge, and Reclaim What Matters will be published by Barrett Kohler Publishers in the summer of 2020. 
Here is the interview with Eileen McDar. In your own words, who is Eileen McDar? <laughs> That's, you know what? That's such an interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. Uh, who am I? Well, here are a couple ways in which I've described myself. I have described myself as a hope merchant, uh, someone who peddles hope and ability, in, at, particularly in times like these, which are so uh, disruptive. Uh, I also have heard myself say, uh, I think I'm on earth for comic relief. I find a way oftentimes of delivering messages in a way that can be profound, pithy, but also funny. I think I see myself as a conduit. And by a conduit, what I mean is that whatever comes out of my mouth, I hope is being accessed by energy forces that are bigger than I am. And I've noticed that when I've gone back and read some of the articles or the books that I've written, honestly, that I think, wow, I don't remember writing that. It's really good. Who did this? You know, it's almost so. So I don't mean this to sound woo-woo or weird or, or whatever, but I think there's all kinds of lessons that float around the universe that if we are open to them, we can hear them and use them. So that's why I say I think I'm also a conduit. I like that. I like that a lot. You mentioned hope. So I'm wondering what it means, what hope means to you, and what is the difference between hope and faith? Well, I tell you, there is an Eric Hoffer philosopher said to have hope. No, excuse me. I'm going to correct myself. It was not Eric. It was Howard Zinn, Z-I-N-N. He said to have hope, one does not need certainty, only possibility. And what I believe faith is, faith is a belief in what is possible. So in that way, they both intersect together. Yeah, I have heard that before from other guests. I asked them, yeah, right, that they are connected somehow. What is another word for life, Eileen? You have such interesting questions. <laughs> another word for life? Well, I would think another word for life would be love. And I say love because without love, there really mm -hmm. is no life. Mm -hmm. And love is, uh, and there are different kinds of love. There's the eros, which is the erratic love. There is the, the, the self-love, which if we don't have some kind of belief in ourselves, it's really hard to feel like we are living. And then there mm -hmm. is the love, there is the love of other people. There's the love of this incredible natural world that we live in. So I think uh, what's interesting is they're both four-letter words. So I think that would be my other word for life. Wow. I have to use the same word. I love your answer. <laughs> same word. <laughs> Um, how do you define success? What is to be successful? To be successful is to be able at the end of your life to feel that you made a difference in the life of a child. And by that, I mean that there's a generativity 
about all of our actions. That it's not just what benefits me here, today, now, but that somehow whatever I become involved in begins to set up a process that will benefit a child, seen or unseen. Another great answer. What is your greatest joy? Uh Wow. There are many things. I I don't know if I could say the greatest as in one. I I do have great joy in children. I just find them when you watch them, when I hold them, when I play with children, there is great joy if the child is is loved and encouraged. Um, so I, I that's great joy. I also have great joy, frankly, um, in my amazing husband. It's the second marriage for both of us. We will be married 40 years, May 18th. I can't believe it. Particularly only 22. <laughs> There's just joy in being in being with him uh in our various adventures so i think the house also brings me that also brings me great joy and i guess the final thing is to be able to feel again that there's joy in that i did something or said something not necessarily large but small that allowed someone to feel joy in themselves yeah how wonderful what is the world's greatest need, in your opinion? God, at this point in time in life, you're asking me that. <laughs> there are so many great needs. I, I think the greatest need for our world right now is understanding and acceptance and a realization that we are all in this together. It's not just 1%. It's not just what beliefs you have as far as your 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 faith your nationality uh i think that's our greatest need is to see that we are we are one planet and one people and that's going to take understanding and listening and being willing to under to know that we either make it together or we don't it's so true i'm wondering what would take or what it takes to get there I think you always start with where you are. And if you think about, if you throw a rock into a pond, the rock has a series of circles. I think you always start with the circle that is closest to you, just like the rock. And some of us are big rocks. Some of us are little tiny rocks. And our sphere of influence, our circles might not go out as far as others, um, but we all have that sphere of influence. So I think where we start is where we are right now. There's that notion of be here now. And this is, this is the only place where I can be. And so what is my circle here now? Um, I'm not going to be queen of the world, empress or president. I have no intention. So my sphere is going to be pretty, pretty small. And yet it is mine. And I have a responsibility to that sphere. Right, right. Taking responsibility for our own lives, yeah, behaviors, habits, actions, right. I will pause just for a moment. I heard noise coming from the outside, it seems to me. Is that possible to close, perhaps the a window? My windows are closed, and you can tell your listeners what they heard was a garbage yeah. truck. <laughs> right. Yeah. Nothing about the garbage truck. <laughs> so I've been, uh, except if I go and sit in my closet, I can't. <laughs> if a garbage truck comes by, you know what? Here's what this is actually a lovely lesson, Valerie, and you might mm-hmm. want to leave this in is that there's garbage truck noises around us all the time. It can't live in a pristine environment where everything is controlled. And so yeah. you say, that's the garbage truck, and this too shall pass. 
as it will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it does. It often does. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll leave this in. <laughs> where, what, and who is God to you? Now, where, what, and who? So where is everywhere. What is God and who I believe that God is a larger force, larger than anything we have. I do believe I, I do believe that we are created by God and that creation can happen in in many ways. I don't want to limit God by saying, well, it had to look just like this because I think, if I limit God by saying, okay, it had to happen in these five days and in this, um, I think that putting limits on God, because I think that is the supreme power. So, so where is everywhere? It is this larger loving force. I also think that because it is a loving force, when we see horrible things that, that we encounter in our world, that God's heart breaks with ours and that if that force were to intervene um, that would mean that that force is making choices who to save who not to save and I think once free will was set forth in the world that we humans do some terrible things to each other and God's heart breaks when that happens and it's up to us to try to undo the damage we've done and God could help us with that what do you think is the purpose of your life to make a difference. When I was in high school, I, I can still remember in high school thinking that there were two things. I could, could I make people wiser, wiser or could I make people happier? And I didn't think I had a lot of wisdom, but I thought happier is something I could, I could work on. And so it is to feel that at the end of my life, it mattered that I was here, which I think we all want that. And right mm-hmm. now, I'm just I'm working on something. It's the power of meaning. And what we're seeing in organizations is, is that people want to know that what I do is meaningful. It matters. And it might be small. There's a story I tell of um, a surgeon who was entering a hospital here in Southern California. And he was overheard going up to the custodian, the janitor, and saying, hey, Sam, nice to see you here. You know, I never worry when I know you're here. Well, those words said to that janitorial person that it is as important that the hospital is clean as that my hands are steady on a table. That comment gave meaning to what at face value could look like a meaningless job, keeping a hospital clean. So I think it is there are ways in which we can make that difference. And that's that's what I think is the purpose of my life. I like that. Do you think that life has uh, life in general has a purpose? Does life have a purpose? Yeah, in general, for all of us, one grand purpose. That's a question I've never pondered. I'm not sure that. Well, all right. So let me ask you: What's the opposite of life? Mm, wow, good question. Transformation, renewal, um, and certainly not death. Okay. See, if I ask somebody the opposite of life, they probably would say death. Right. <laughs> and so what you've offered, transformation, renewal, is, I think, is not life as much as living. There's a difference between life and living. Life is a static noun, uh, whereas living, an I-N-G word, it is it's constantly going on. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, the old English teacher in me, it's a gerund. So living is a moving, breathing transforming. 
So I think the question then is, what does it mean to be living? Yeah, you know, I like that better. And what you said before about meaning. So we're all giving meaning to our own lives, and that is living, whatever yeah, meaning we assign to our lives. Right. And don't we see, I mean, here are some of the great tragedies that I see around us is the growing rise of student suicides. And it's because somehow, whether it's bullying, whether it's the, the comparison that they do on Instagram or or Facebook, that they're not as good as that they can't live up. And so living has become intolerable. Um, and so it stops. Uh, and I think maybe that's another way in which we all, uh, if there are people in our lives, how do we let them know that their lives matter and th- their living is important to us? Wow. Um yeah, this is something very serious that you just mentioned about the lack of um, purpose, meaning. That's a, another interview, I would say, another episode. I, ha- I have to elaborate the questions for that one. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, balancing an unequal life. My first question is, what does a balanced life look like? Well, first off, let me say that there's a problem with the word balance, and I had to use it because that's the common, uh, that's the common verb how to balance. But if I ask you to hold up your hands to show me what balance looks like, you would hold them up in some way to resemble a scale, like a scale of justice, and so that the word balance itself seems to imply equality that every part of our life is equal. And so that's why I said an unequal life. Balancing is not coming up with something that is equal, but rather, and here's the word I'm going to use instead of balancing, because I have to explain it first, otherwise people would never get it. It's not so much balancing as it is sailing. And let me explain sailing. Uh, Sailing is my metaphor. And there is a there is an expression that if uh, if a picture is worth a thousand words, a metaphor is worth a thousand pictures. And uh, as a as a kid, I grew up in South Florida in Fort Lauderdale, and we had a friend who had this single person little boat. They called it a cat boat, and you could stick that cat boat in the back of a station wagon and go to the beach. And with one other person, you could launch that boat out to sea. So, have you ever gone sailing? No, actually, no. I don't know how to swim, so I never did that. <laughs> no. Well, let me ask you, have you ever seen a sailboat? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're in a one-person boat and you're out in, in the Atlantic and you've got the Gulf Stream, which goes along the coast of Florida, to be that one person in that boat, you have one hand is on the tiller, which is the direction. Another hand is on the, the sheet. It's, it's the line that's holding the sail. And if it's a wonderful day like you get in South Florida and the wind is it's just blowing, blowing, and the sail, the sail is getting filled, the boat begins to tip over. It's, it's on its side. So from any vantage point, if you could see me now, I would look theoretically as if I was out of balance because my toes would be hooked underneath part of the boat. I'm hanging onto the sheet. I've got my hand over in the tiller. What allows that boat, that little sailboat, to go forward is that it is consciously connected. I am consciously connected to the most important parts of that boat. If I let go, 
abandon that boat, that's when I'm overboard and I'm swimming with the sharks. So this notion then of balancing is really an unequal life is to say, all of us have five parts of our, our boat. We all the same five parts. It's just that they look different at different parts of our life. So the one part is, is there's the physical tiller. And I, I call it physical because if you ever in a little tiny boat, and you have a good head of wind, you can actually feel the waves in the tiller. So there's there's our physical body. So that's one thing for us to pay attention to. Another part of our, our boat, which we all have, is the emotional centerboard. And the centerboard in one of these tiny boats is, is something that you actually put down in the middle of the little boat, and it keeps the boat on an even keel. Well, we all have an emotional centerboard of people who are with us in that sailboat. And at different phases of our life, we will need to pay more attention to some of those people than at other times. So you have the, the physical, you have the emotional, what I think of as the intellectual. That's your work. Whatever it is that you're doing right now, it uh, and it can be, you know, c- conducting this podcast right now is part of your intellectual, you know, you're connected with it. Remember I said the critical word was connection. When you finish this, you're going to go do the editing. You know, that's that's part of it. If you were going to go back to school, that's another part. If you were volunteering um, in your church, in your community, um, different things that intellectually capture us. So we all go through different phases of that, but I have to stay connected with it. So you have the physical, the emotional, the intellectual, and there are two more parts. There's the material and the spiritual. The material is what does this boat look like? And you and I spend time. Remember, that's all we have is time. We spend time supporting a material lifestyle. Uh, When I wrote my very first book, I remember talking to this man in one of the, the, the high rise offices in Los Angeles. And I said, are you happy? And he said, well, I'm as happy as I could be working. And what do you mean by that? He said, well, you know, they pay me too much money. You know, I've got, you know, I've got my kids. They're all in private school. You know, I belong to three golf courses. You know, we go to Europe in the summer. And of course, I'm thinking three golf courses. How many, how many golf courses can you play at one time? What he was telling me was that his choices, the way in which he was connected, was eating part of who he was to support a material lifestyle. The other part of our boat is the spiritual. If you were to see a, a, a tiller, it looks like the letter Z. And so the part that you see is the, the head of the letter Z. Then another part comes down where it hooks to the, to the base of the Z. But at the base of that Z is this little thing called a rudder. And it's very small, but it determines where that boat goes. And so the spiritual rudder to me is being connected with that part of the world, which is greater than all of us. It could be organized religion. It could be a spiritual practice. It could be meditation. It could be putting a backpack on and hiking up to the Sierras because that's where you feel connected to something that's larger than you are. So we all have different phases of our life. And if I use the metaphor of sailing, when the wind shifts in my sailboat, I have to shift. I have to come about. I don't disconnect with important parts, but I might not be as connected with them. And think of connection as spending time. So for example, I'll give you an example. When my sister and her husband were fighting his stage three lung cancer, that's the physical side. 
Neither of them abandoned, quote, their work, but they weren't as connected with it. That work actually helped them feel somewhat sane. They were also more connected emotionally with our family, with people who are there to support them. And so the wind shifted in their life. Um, another yeah. way to, to think about this uh, on the emotional side is with, with if we have children. Do you have any children? No, I don't. No. Uh, but you've seen children. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> well, if I were to ask someone, you know, if you, you know, there's visit audience and ask anybody of newborns. Well, if you've got a newborn, your physical sleep is going to be way different than people who don't have children because you're with them. And then I say, you know, how many of you have, you know, toddlers, people have toddlers, your emotional connection with them, your time is different. And if you have teenagers, oh my gosh, now your attention and time is really different. And so the different phases of our life will require different connections, different use of time and energy. So when I cared for my mother in the last six years of her life, I pretty much was not very connected with, quote, my business, my work. I didn't abandon it. I'm still connected. But my primary attention, my energy was focused on her. And so my boat had the shift to take that into account. Is this making sense? It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I have a lot of questions. <laughs> okay. Just go for it. Yeah. The way you speak, it makes me think of um, the importance of being kind to ourselves, being flexible, and the ability to adapt. Is that these things that are just uh, these items connected to what you described having this life that is, you call it consciously connected? That's correct. Yeah. We, where we begin to feel overwhelmed is where we have disconnected with what's important right here, right now. And it could be mentally, emotionally, physical, spiritual, or material. In one of those areas, we, we've disconnected from it. So so the notion of adaptability is, is to say, given what's happening to me now, today, where the wind is blowing in my life, how can I adapt to this situation? So, for example, when I'm taking care of my mom and we, she was with me for a while and then we found a place in a assisted living, which was two miles up the road. So part of my exercise, because it's very important to me, I got to stay connected with my physical body, was to run to her. So I would run two miles. I would go be with mother. We would do whatever. And I would run back. So that was a way of being adaptable, knowing I need to get some kind of exercise, uh, but how can I do it and being adaptable uh, with her? Uh, so adaptability is a huge, huge resiliency skill. And it's looking at multiple ways to solve the situation. Um, and there always are multiple ways. Part of our challenge is we oftentimes can only find one other way. And that's where we have to have the courage to ask other people, you know, I can only see this. I got these two choices. Then someone say, well, let me give you some other options you might have. You might not like the other options, but it is it is giving yourself a broader palette of paint that you can pull from. Right. You're talking about things like being open, also being creative. But maybe it has also to do with intelligence. Right. I see that a lot of people who are able to handle challenges, they are often also emotionally intelligent. I have seen that around me. 
you know, we talk about artificial intelligence. We talk about emotional intelligence has certainly been in the last decade. And which emotional intelligence is number one is self-awareness of your own emotional. It's, it's the ability to delay gratification. So I don't have to have the, um, just stay in the physical realm. I don't have to have the piece of uh, semi-sweet chocolate. You know, I can delay gratification until I've done those two miles to mom and two miles coming back. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> it's, it's also emotional uh, intelligence is awareness of the feelings of others you know, and being sensitive to that. So emotional intelligence certainly uh, does play part of it. And and by the way, as we're talking, I want you to know, I teach, I write what I need to learn. So I don't come with all the answers. Um, and sometimes I do better at this than others. Sometimes I just stink. <laughs> <laughs> and my husband, as I lead, read your book, <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> but it's um, in the in the conversations that we have with others, we often gain insights from from those people and even from kids kids give us oh oh my gosh give us insights absolutely you also mentioned uh, spirituality i have i think two questions here what is spirituality and how is being spiritual different from being religious i'm going to answer that second question to me religious is connected to a a belief system that is formalized, that has protocol and process. So if I say I'm religious, just in my experience, I was raised Catholic. So to be religious is that, you know, you you go to church every Sunday, uh, it's Lent. So uh, back in the good old days, you did not eat meat on Friday. Um, you did fast and abstinence. And you would say, I'm a religious person. Spiritual, and there's there is a big difference. I think we're seeing that a lot more, whereas some of the organized religion has become so strict, so inflexible that it could, in a sense, drive people away. Mm -hmm. Because spirituality, to be spiritual, is to, again, see yourself part of a larger world, a world that is inclusive, not exclusive. And sometimes, Mm -hmm. in the name of religion, we have become exclusive instead of inclusive. So true, creating a lot of separation, right? Not the opposite. I agree. Yeah, it's great the way you compare life to a boat. (laughs) And then you say parts of the boat and sailing, and then you divide into the intellectual, emotional, physical, and spiritual. So I'm wondering if we are consciously connected to the spiritual part of our boat if we can easily become consciously connected to the other parts? Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, I think we must. Otherwise, we are not sailing in an unequal life. And consciously connected is is where you say, and let me translate it, where is your energy going? If it's one thing to be connected spiritually so that in the morning I have a, I have a meditation practice and I do some reading and that consciously connects me to a world that's larger than I am. But then I get up and then I go to the gym. So I'm consciously connected to how's my body doing and how am I feeling today and and what are you know what are the exercises that I need to do. I can come back and be consciously connected with my colleagues um, as we either do telephone calls like you and I right now are having this wonderful conversation. We are consciously connected. We are sharing ideas. 
Uh, so we're both we're connected on the emotional level as well as on an intellectual level. So absolutely, I think you benefit by being consciously connected. So being disconnected, being disconnected is what throws you out of the boat. This new book that I have coming up in August, which is called Burnout to Breakthrough. And in Burnout to Breakthrough, one of my first case studies is this young man who was connected solely to his work. He, and he had like three different jobs and he was, I'm, you know, I'm going to tear the world apart and everybody expects a lot out of me. He worked for three solid days with like two hours sleep in three solid days. He walked into the restroom and at this one office, he passed out on the floor and woke up literally 12 hours later in a pool of vomit. He was not consciously connected to other parts of his life. And it was a huge, he was a marvelous young man. It was a huge wake-up call for him. Yeah, I think we all can relate to that. I mean, not to that extent, perhaps, but... Uh, his, was, his was very dramatic, but I, I think this burnout... Uh, which now the World Health Organization has listed and its classification of occupational hazards. I mean, it's actually now in its itemization is huge because our con we are almost too connected with the job, with the work. We're overwhelmed. You go home. You've got the. You're still looking at email. You, you check it before you go to bed. You're sending text messages out. You know, vacation. What the heck is a vacation? I haven't had vacation. Yeah. I mean, think about it, vacation, vacari is to make empty, but we don't make it empty, we fill it up. So it's it is a huge, it's a huge issue because it disconnects us from other things that are important to us. So true. I'm wondering what the practices, practices that could help us. Um, you mentioned meditation. Yes, I would there, you know, and some things are very easy to do and some things are a little bit harder. So definitely for me. The ability to be silent and just to breathe. And while this might sound like this is something that, okay, she's from California and they all do that stuff. This is taught at Harvard. And uh, there are classes at Harvard. I, I do work with management teams. And one of these teams, they were from around the world. And before we started our whole executive session, I gave them an option. I said, we're going to meet me, you know, early. Um, I have yoga mats for you. We will we will be doing a silent meditation uh, led by a person whom I found. Do you know all but one person? This is optional. All but one person came down to sit on the meditation mat, to lay down and just to breathe. And when it was all over, this was this was two and a half days when you said, what do you want to take back with you? Besides some of the other learnings, almost to a person, it was, I want to do this more regular. They wanted to involve it. So meditation is one. Okay, here's another, here's another thing. We, to be practical is uh, you have to figure out where, did, where is your energy going? So this is the most tedious thing I'll recommend that people do is to keep a time log from the time you get up until you go to bed. And on the time log, and don't, don't make this a big hairy deal, but have, I don't care what, it's a notebook, whatever you want to write it. And you're going to have three columns. One column says time. So what time is it? The next column says what? Like, what am I doing? The next column says who? And so from the time you get up, what? how much time is it? So it takes me, let's pretend, 30 minutes to get dressed. And then I got another 15 minutes to eat lunch. And then I've got the, or breakfast rather. Um, then I, uh, 
oh, I can't find the stuff that I need to take back to the office. And that's another 20 minutes of searching for papers that I need. Uh, and then that, so what happens is it's fascinating. If you can do this, just even for five days, you will begin to see patterns in your life. And if you take those sheets of paper and spread them across a table, the floor, I don't care, and look at what, where is my life going? And you, you will begin to see patterns. And the question is, why am I doing this? How am I doing this? And is this of value? So let me give you an example. When I created this process, uh, this practice is one of the things that became very, a couple of things popped up. Number one was I needed organization in my office. The amount of time that I was spent looking for files was ridiculous. I found a professional organizer to come and get me organized. The other thing I discovered was that I was spending so much time with a nonprofit organization. I sat on the board and I looked at that. I had no idea how much time this was taking. And mm -hmm. I thought, for this phase of my life, where I am right now, is this a value? And I had to say, it's not. So I resigned. I also discovered how much time I was spending with a person in my life. And I said, do I really want to spend that kind of time with this individual? Um, and so we'll see people who can obviously consume our time. So mm -hmm. this is a way of actually thinking with data. Of pulling back and saying, why am I, why am I doing this? Another practice which I have used, and this was when I became aware that taking care of this physical body, and this is the steam that drives the locomotive. I don't take care of this. I can't take, I can't make a difference. I can't do anything else. So my goal was to exercise three times a week. And I, I still use a paper, a paper calendar, a paper day timer. I love it. Um, so what I decided is that whenever I exercised, I would give myself a sticker. You know those stickers like kids have that you know they're just fun. They're you know rabbits and horses and flies. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. to this day, and I mean I've been doing this now for over thirty years. I still give myself stickers. And there's something about looking down and because oh. I did this. So initially in, in the very beginning, if I saw two stickers in a week, I said, well, that's good. That's good. I'm doing something. And next week, oh, maybe I had three stickers. Uh, it was fun, but it, it allowed me to focus, to pay attention to the fact this is something that's valuable. I love them. Yeah. The first one, outsourcing. When If we need an organization, we need help in some areas. So we should just hire a company or people to help us, right? I like that idea a lot. And keep tracking of everything, right? How valid our, what we are doing is. Uh, sometimes we can lose track. That's so true. So true. Talk to me about SAD, S-A-D-D. Oh, situational attention deficit disorder. So word that I created. Situational attention deficit disorder is when we are trying to multitask and we're failing. And our attention is not focused. So, for example, have you ever uh, walked into a room and you stand there and you say, well, I know I came in here for a reason. I just, I don't know why. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or you, you dial the phone and you, and while it's ringing, you start answering email. And by the time the person answered the phone, you forgot who you called. <laughs> wow. That's situational attention deficit disorder. And so what it is, is that this notion that we are good multitaskers is wrong, 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 wrong. 
The research, I don't care whether you look at what comes out of Canada, what comes out of the UK, it all says we, our brains were not designed to multitask. And when we do that, so it's situational attention deficit disorder. When we do that, it takes us twice as long to get back on what it was that we were doing, which is why, you know, you often say, don't put your, don't let the email come flying through every five minutes because it takes your attention away. Turn off the ringer on your phone. If you're going to focus on something, focus on one thing. Otherwise, we suffer from sad situational attention deficit disorder. Wow. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. I actually feel happier when I concentrate on one thing, one thing only. I'm so much more satisfied and happy. The brain's happier. It releases uh, happy chemicals. It's kind of it's interesting. So how do we turn sad into glad? Well, by turning sad into glad is by doing some of the processes that I, that I recommended is where you begin to say, where is my attention going? Um, and that's to, to begin to take control, to control the controllable of what of this can I control? Uh, it might be I, I can't control the amount of information that somebody is asking of me. But then again, oftentimes there is a place of control and we're not courageous enough to say, you know what? You gave me three things to do. I can do one of them well. Which do you want me to do? Um, so it, it's all about getting back into control. Yeah. And this is something that I know you give some um, some ideas and it's another acronym that you use, control. But before that, I made some comments here. I'm curious to know what is uh, the difference between choosing and controlling? To say I choose means I'm in control. If I don't say I choose, that means somebody else is controlling me. For example, when... Um, when my youngest daughter was baby was started to go babysit and she'd walk out of the house, she walked out of the house, she said, Oh, I have to go babysit. Mm-hmm. No, you don't. You don't have to go. You're choosing mm-hmm. to go. Well, well, I I I said I would. I said, okay, you're choosing to keep your word. Well, I want the money. I said, Oh, you're choosing. So she finally got it. That it was it was a choice. Because if I know that it's a choice, I can unchoose it. Every time I say I have to, somebody else is in control other than me being in control, that I am in control. So that's the difference between choosing and controlling. So choosing is saying I am in control versus the universe is controlling me. Right. Now that makes sense. Yeah. I was just wondering because a lot of times we we choose, but in a sense, we are trying to control what we can't anyway. And I think the the wiser thing to do would be accepting. That's it. So I could, uh, you know, so here taking care of my mother, I chose for her to come live with me. I chose for her to be at the assisted living. Uh, No one made me do it. It was my choice. Could I control what was going on with her mentally and physically? No. So where were my choice points? My choice points were who did I put around her? What kind of care did we have? How can I handle all of her finances? How can I handle? So so you say, where are my places of, of choice? And sometimes you just accept what it is. For now, yeah. this is where mom is. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I 
I like that. The idea of knowing the difference, right? Like um, being self-aware. It goes back to self-knowledge, um, self-awareness, right? I made a comment here, um, something that I found to be interesting that you mentioned. It was about saying no. Um, you said no, not never, not now. Um, why are we so afraid of saying no? What people will think of us, particularly women. Yes, right. We have a very hard time saying no. It's fascinating to me that, well, I, I, I won't be a good employee. They won't like me. You know, I'm not a team player. Uh, so we, we, and sometimes we take on the yes because, well, I feel so important. I mean, you think you're important? You should see the list that I have to do. I'm really, really important because I have 2,700 things to do today and you only have two. Ha! I'm more important than you are. Um, so saying no is, um, and or not now, uh, is is something to learn. And depending on our our families of origin and how we grew up, you know, in some cases we were, you know, the good little girl is supposed to say yes all the time. Well, that's not necessarily wise advice. Yeah. And you're right. Women, we have, it's harder for us, more challenging yeah, to embrace that. Right? It is. Let me just a real quick example. I mean, I'm watching our time here too, because I know we need to be closing this off soon. Uh, here's a good example. I have many colleagues in the speaking profession. What I'm amazed at is how many times a woman's organization will ask a woman to speak for free. Now, this is what we do for a living. This is supports our family. This is what pays the mortgage. And the women's organization expects women to do it for nothing, but they would never ask that of a man. And so if the guy says, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, you're going to need to pay me this. They go, oh, okay, well, well, we'll do that. Whereas we say, oh, okay, you need this. I'll go do this. And I kind of made it a policy unless, I mean, now that's not to say that I wouldn't do something for a, a woman's organization. Of course I would, if I felt that I could be of great service, but I'm not going to do it when I turn around and find out that they're paying men and not paying women. I've seen that happen too often. Um, yeah, I don't even know what to say because it doesn't make any sense. But No, it does not. It, it happens, like you said. It's a fact. Yeah. Hmm. You said something funny. You said develop a horse sense. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> horse sense. <laughs> horse sense is the ability to say nay <laughs> or woo as the case may be. So that's this notion of being able to develop horse sense is to develop the ability to say no. That's what horse sense is. Great. I didn't connect those two things, right? <laughs> That's cute. I never heard of that before. And um, what we talked about earlier, meditation, silence, how important it is. Uh, what is the difference between being calm and being peaceful? That's interesting. Let me explain it this way. Peaceful. And I'm not sure that there's a great difference. Um, I could appear very calm on the outside, but I'm like a duck. And my legs are moving just as fast as they can. On the outside, I look like I have it all together, but I am just paddling just as fast as you can. <laughs> so calm could be the appearance of being in control. It's like the duck in the pond, but you don't realize how fast they're trying to paddle in order to get through whatever they're getting through. So, so calm, I think, is um, an external visualization. Oh, look how calm this person is. Peaceful is internal. Mm -hmm. Peaceful says, in the middle of all of this, 
as craziness as this is, there is a sense of peace. I've done all that I can do and I have to let it go. So there, so to me, that's the difference between peace and calm, whereas calm is appearance and peace is internal. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, being calm relies on um, external things. Yeah, to be calm. It makes sense. And I love the way you talk and it's something that you include in your work, uh, laughter, sense of humor. That is so important. It seems to be connected with peace in a way to me. Because it's hard to laugh if you're not, if you don't have that peace within, or that calm within. It's, um, it, well, Mr. Borgia is the one that said laughter is the shortest distance between two people. <laughs> and so I said, how do we create a world of understanding? If I can laugh with somebody, we begin to break down barriers. Uh, and, and laughter also tells us what's important. If I can laugh at it, go, well, <laughs> that's kind of funny. Now let's go let's figure what's important about this, but could we... Could we laugh about this? I mean, I would have to laugh at things that my mom did because I think if I didn't laugh, I would have cried. And there could be things that were funny. And I could, you, you look for the funny. Right, right. And that's so important in life, the well-being, right? It's part of uh, carrying this life that it's well. Right, right, right. Would you like to say or add anything, Eileen, before I ask you my final, final questions? It, no, you've asked so many wonderful questions and we've gone <laughs> in so many different directions. No, uh, give me your final question. Let's see what I can answer for you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what is to be strong? To be strong? Yes. Well, there's different kinds of strengths. There's the physical strength, which we all can acknowledge. You can be physically strong and mentally very weak. To me, strength is when all parts of our life, in whatever phase we are, are aligned which, with what is most important at this point in time in my life. So, for example, I think when I can move through my work, I can take care of my friends and my family, and I can respond to situations uh, with a sense of personal integrity. Um, I think that's that's to be strong. It also, to me, uh, is that when I'm presented with challenges, while it might tear me apart, I can figure out and get other people to also help me. How do I move for that, move, move forward? So I believe that's that's also a strength. Oh, I love that. Yeah, being humble, vulnerable, right? What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? <laughs> I'm still learning them. <laughs> no, no. I can't tell you what was the hardest because I think I'm constantly learning about myself, things that I like, things that I don't like. Um, it's the day the learning Darps is the day I have ceased breathing. I don't think I could say what's the hardest lesson I've learned. If I had to take at least one guess so we can, you know, get some kind of closure for your listeners, it was learning to let go. I think I try, I, I want to fix everything. And with, with my life, with my first marriage, which didn't work, uh, with taking care of mom, it's saying, oh, what of this can I control and learning to let go. And that is, it sounds trite, but it is true. Let go and let God and to learn that I'm not in control in many cases. I can control some things, but overall, let go and let God. So many of us can relate to that. Mm-hmm. Do you believe in unconditional self-love? 
unconditional self-love. Do I believe in it? Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know because I think depending on what happens in our life, there are days in which we, you know, can unconditionally love who we are and other days in which we're very disappointed in ourselves. So I don't know that it's a static. Once you've got it, you always have it. I think it varies. Okay. If you know you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change about your life? Do anything differently? I probably would keep trying to do more. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I would do anything differently. When I look back over my life, things that at one point in time seemed terrible put me to a different place than I would ever have imagined. Um, And so that the patterns of the past bring me to the place where I am now. And so if you go back and say, would I change this? No, I wouldn't. Wow, wonderful. Do you believe in life after death? I do. What kind of life? I don't know. But I I do believe that where we think it's a period, God put a comma. (laughs) Uh, What are three things about life you know for sure? That it's short. um, That I know for sure. I know for sure that love is absolutely the most critical thing. And when we lose it or we don't give it away, uh, extend to others, life becomes very hard. That was two, uh, three and two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It has been a meaningful and fun conversation. I love your wisdom and your depth. Wonderful. So wonderful. Really beautiful. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your books, services, and future projects, Eileen? Thank you. Now, going to my website. So you have my name posted there on your podcast, EileenMacDar.com. Just spell it and you can get there. My my books are up there. Um, there are uh, videos that are some of the presentations that I've done. Obviously, I'd love to come into people's organizations and, and speak with them, help people, and whether it's uh, on an individual basis or a collective basis. So that's probably the best place. They can also go to Amazon and type my name and they'll find things there. But everything is really condensed on that website. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Eileen. Now talk to you soon. You're welcome. My pleasure. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Eileen McDar, please visit her website, theresiliencygroup.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Bye.